everyone, and welcome to the ADEA podcast channel. My name is Jan Alford, and I'll once again be your host. Today's session will be addressing some key factors that CDEs need to consider when providing diabetes programs and services to people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Sarah Abdo, an endocrinologist working at Bankstown Lidcombe Hospital. Sarah is also a senior lecturer at Western Sydney University and has undertaken research into gestational diabetes outcomes across different ethnic groups, as well as developing guidelines for the management of diabetes in pregnancy during Ramadan. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Jan. I'm very glad to have the opportunity to discuss this important topic with your listeners. Thanks again. I'm sure that our listeners will gain a great deal from hearing about your experience, your research and expertise on this topic. And I'd like to start firstly to ask you, are you able to outline for us some of the factors that might impact on patients from cultural and linguistically diverse backgrounds engaging with the CDE, please? Well, as you know, Jan, the engagement of the diabetes patient is extremely important. Um, across the lifetime of, of the patient. And many people have a variety of factors that will impact on their level of engagement at different points in their life. And I think this doesn't differ at all for people from a culturally and linguistically diverse background. Now, first of all, there are many intrinsic factors. So factors, you know, specific to the patient themselves, such as their attitudes, their health beliefs, um, whether there's any underlying depression, anxiety, their level of self-efficacy, the level of diabetes knowledge they have and their technical skill, um, their functional health literacy, and also, of course, their ethnicity and their culture. Now, medication adherence is also a factor that we can't really control from within the patient. But beyond that, there are ex extrinsic factors that affect everybody as well. So financial capabilities, the influence of family and workplace, as well as the community in which the patient lives. And more importantly for us, I guess, is their clinical relationships and their ability to access effective diabetes um, healthcare. And I think that culture matters um, in all of our encounters, not just in the cases where patients are, you know, of a specific culture or a linguistic um, group. And I think that's really important for understand for us to understand that we often look at um, this, you know, topic of cultural competency in relation to patients from a group other than the mainstream. So I think if we all look at each individual patient encounter and realise that everybody comes from some sort of culture, that that's important. But in regards to the um, linguistic diversity, as you would be aware, in the 2016 census in Australia, over 30% of the population was identified as being born out of Australia and over 20% identified speaking a language other than English at home. And in Sydney, um, this was up to 40% in some parts. So this means that there is no doubt that we are going to come across patients from all walks of life in our practice and therefore we need to be open to learning and engaging with each individual. And I think that that's the, the key. It's about being open to what we can understand from that patient um, and understanding what their ideas and experiences are, not what we think that their culture is about. So often we feel like we might know what their culture is about and we may have some biases even uh, biases that we're not aware of. So when we're aware that we do have an unconscious bias and we accept this and then we make a conscious effort 
but to change the way we think about the patient in front of us and not allow our potential biases to affect our um, decisions. I think that's the key to engaging the patient because they can tell um, a genuine encounter from a non-genuine one. Thanks, Sarah. So are there any particular community issues our members might need to think about when they're working with different cultural groups? So, you know, just as I said for um, the, the previous question, so there are many the community factors affecting a whole range of people regardless of their cultural background and a lot of the factors within the community environment can affect patient engagement, they can affect the ability for self-management and they can really either um, enhance or impair the uh, ability of patients to achieve, to achieve their goals. Some of these things are simple things like access to healthy foods. So how available and affordable is healthy food and that can differ across patients from different cultural groups. Um, suitable exercise areas. So again, patients from different cultural groups might not be as used to being in the outdoors as we are in Australia. They might not be as comfortable to just go for a jog. Um, so safety, comfort and culturally appropriate. So in some cultures, for example, in the Muslim culture, you may have Muslim women who may want to exercise comfortably and separately to males. So do we have those things available for them? It's easy for us to say, you know, you need to do exercise, but what's available within the community that can make this achievable? Um, other things is just the affordability of the medications and supplies and then the ability for them to have ongoing follow-up. Now, with regards to culture specifically and how um, this could influence, the, the cultural influences don't just relate to ethnicity, but different um, cultures have different customs and traditions beliefs and decision-making practices that may be passed down from generation to generation. And this can affect engagement in diabetes-related health practices. Some people's cultures may not rate diabetes as an illness at all, and therefore they may not rate that as a priority in terms of taking care of their health. Um, another factor that strongly influences this is our family. I think the family environment in some cultures is largely where disease management occurs, particularly in diabetes. This is, this is basically the link between community interventions and, and patient individual interventions. So I think it is important to involve families if the patient is happy because they need information, they need effective strategies, and motivation um, to help uh, the individual manage their diabetes. So where we can, involving the families in clinical care and education um, is extremely important. But what's most important is that never assume that you know anything in particular about an individual. Always ask them what they like. Just be aware of what the potential um, issues that may come up for them. So Sarah, could, I would love it if you could identify for our members what issues might impact on clinical relationships when you're working with multicultural groups. Well, yeah, as I said before, the clinical relationship is one of those factors that does impact on engagement. And so that's where we do need to really think about where we can engage our patients. So we need to find a way to connect with um, and understand the individual patient's experience of their illness and their cultural values so that we can provide better care and make their you know, difficult journey of illness a bit easier. And what's importantly is if the patient does not value the relationship or they have a reduced confidence in their healthcare provider, they don't value, um, you know, or really have confidence in implementing the recommendations made by that provider. So it's in our best interest to make that relationship as good as possible to improve the engagement in diabetes self-management, which then in turn hopefully improves um, diabetes outcomes. So I think that this relationship can be impacted by both conscious and unconscious bias. 
on the part of the provider. And that's why I guess many of your members are probably listening to this podcast because they are wanting to improve their cultural awareness and their cultural competency. Um, but I believe that cultural competency specifically in that terminology can have the tendency to result in more stereotyping of patients based on their um, assumed beliefs and sometimes alienates patients by focusing on the differences between us and them. And the other issue is that when a person imagines they are culturally competent, they can sometimes um, have the mistaken impression that they are then an expert in the patient's culture. And remember, each individual within the cultural group is very different. So this can then impact on the clinical relationship. So you really need to make sure that you are interpreting the patient's symptoms and requests through their lived experience, not what your stereotyped view of their culture is. So again, really the, the main thing is that you're genuine in your engagement and that you ask each individual when you see them because having a strong clinical relationship is the foundation really of ensuring the patient stays on track. Now, Sarah, I've heard an expression called the, or a, a statement called the Kalamazoo Consensus Statement. I'm wondering if you could explain to us what that is, please. Yeah, so that, that's a bit of a funny name. Um, so the, the thing about this statement is that, look, if you think about it, about 50 years ago, if you look at physicians, they weren't ideal in the way that they communicated indicated patients, right? So um, in the last 30 years, there's been a real push to improve physician-patient communication. And I guess that's where the Kalamazoo consensus statement came about. So it's a framework that was proposed about 30 years ago. And basically it was used to define the essential elements of a physician-patient communication encounter so that medical students um, and trainees could be assessed in how well they're doing. So it was developed in the US and it's um, it just developed after a conference in the US. And basically the report from the conference resulted in the Kalamazoo consensus statement. And the essential things that come out of this is that there are seven key elements of communication in a clinical encounter that were identified. The first one is build the relationship. The second one is open the discussion. Number three is gather information. Number four is understand the patient's perspective. Number five is share your information. And number six is reach an agreement. And then number seven is provide closure. So it was hoped that providing the, uh, this common framework, this expert consensus statement may help to facilitate the development of a communications curriculum and assessment tool within medical education. So it's just important, I guess, to say that that's there as a basis. And if you use um, those ideas, which within the realm of diabetes educators, I think you guys are well and truly, you know, on top of that. But it's just important to remember that in every encounter, regardless of the patient that's in front of you. Thank you for uh, clarifying that for me. Um, Sarah, I suspect one of the most common cultural issues our members may come across in their practice is how to support clients wanting to fast during Ramadan. And I wonder if you could provide us with some points that might assist them with that. Yeah, so that's a really good question, Jan. Thanks for that. Look, Ramadan is a really good example because it comes around every year um, and so it is going to continue to be an issue for many patients. Now, first of all, I think it's important that you aim for a very clear, open communication without judgment. Patients are very quick to sense if the provider is going to judge them or not. And let's be honest, they will often either omit 
it um, information or they may just lie to you. So I know a lot of um, patients who will not discuss Ramadan with their clinician because they feel like they're just going to try and convince them not to fast. And that's not the case. So if you remember that your role is to educate and then possibly to advise patients, of course, of the risks and benefits of either choice they make. And remember that not all patients will choose to fast. So it's really important that you just um, set up a framework for discussion that is really open. So for example, you want to start by soliciting the patient's agenda. So what is the patient actually planning to do rather than assuming uh, what you think they're going to do? And then you will maybe reflect back to them some information. So you might sound to them, say to them, so how does that sound to you? You know, uh, you can check concordance with the patient. So are they in agreement that what they are hearing from you is actually what you've said to them. So verify their understanding of the information you've given them and then show empathy in your encounter. So reflect back what your understanding of the patient situation is. So for example, you may like to use statements like, um, starting off the consult with, I'd like to talk to you about your health regime during Ramadan. You know, prior I was using things like, oh, so are you planning to fast Ramadan? Or, you know, it's, it's always an, an assumption about what I'm thinking the patient's going to do. So now I'm, I like to use a very neutral terminology like that. So I'd like to just discuss with you what your health regime or what your plans are during Ramadan. And then you may follow that with, as you know, some patients choose to fast, others prefer not to fast. Um, and basically my role here is to help you with your decision whether you choose to fast or not. And it gives you as much information as possible about the various risks of either choice. Um, and you may even, if you're not of the Muslim faith, you might not actually have very much idea about what their routine is like at all. So you should just be honest and say, look, I'm not really familiar with all the alterations that you might make in your diet or your activity levels or your medication um, during Ramadan, but I'd welcome your input and let me know what's worked for you in the past. So what have you done in previous years and how has that worked? You know, often patients will say to you, well, I feel that Ramadan, um, my diabetes uh, therapy uh, works really well and my control is the best, in fact. And that may actually be the case for some people because they are very routine in their meals. They take their medications at a, a very regular time. But in others who are high-risk patients, then Ramadan is not safe for them at all. So it's really important, obviously, that their medical practitioner decides on you know, what risk category they fall into. But from an educator's point of view, opening discussion in a non-judgmental way is extremely important. And then you might end with something like, look, the decision to fast or not will always be up to you and I will work with you whatever your decision is. And I just want to make sure you have all the information you need. So that really means that you just remain on the side of the patient. So you can't basically abandon them once they tell you, well, I'm choosing to fast. If you disagree with that and then you're disengaging with the patient, then that's not really good at building the ongoing relationship. So it's really important that they know that you're there to help them with whatever decision they make and try and keep them as safe as possible. Sounds like good advice. Thank you for that. The other expression I've heard used in this area is that of cultural humility and I'm just wondering if you could explain for our members what that actually means. Yeah, so cultural humility is a newer expression that's come around in this whole sort of cultural competence um, field. Um, and I think if we look back at the medical system, what it's trying to do is help physicians and other healthcare providers to understand and incorporate cultural beliefs through what we call cultural competency. And this approach traditionally tries to teach about the main beliefs and values um, that each culture holds. Um, and the problem with this approach is that sometimes culture can become a list of traits that we associate with various racial 
racial and ethnic groups. And that sometimes in some way we might be able to master these traits and then apply them to patients as we see necessary. So while it's well-intentioned, this sort of vision of cultural competency can give the impression that a healthcare worker can then sometimes reach an endpoint where they're, you know, completely competent. And I guess the other danger with that is that when a person imagines they are culturally competent, they might have the mistaken impression that they are an expert in the patient's culture. And as I mentioned before, every culture is has multitude of layers within that culture and a, a wide range of ways that people practice. So there isn't a monoculture even around different cultural groups. So this um, concept of cultural humility um, can be defined as a process that requires humility as individuals continually engage themselves in self-reflection and self-critique, regarding themselves as lifelong learners and reflective practitioners. And what it does is puts everyone on the same platform. And that's because there is no minority or majority or ethnicity associated with it. It basically just takes away the need to know everything about a certain culture. And instead, it encourages us to approach each patient encounter, acknowledging that we will humble ourselves because we acknowledge there is something important important to learn with that particular patient. And then we leave the encounter having learned something from that interaction because we've intended that we don't know everything about this individual in front of us, even though they look like they're from this culture and we think this is what they're about. We go in there humble and say, you know what, I really don't know what this is about. I'm going to see what I'm going to find out from this person. So we could use the acronym ASSESS, so that's A-S-S-E-S-S, to help us practice cultural humility in any encounter. And I'll go through those things with you very quickly. So A is for asking questions in a humble and safe manner. Um, S is for seeking self-awareness. So that's for looking into ourselves. And the next S is to suspend judgment. The E is for expressing kindness and compassion in our encounter. The S is for support, um, a safe and welcoming environment for the patient. And then the final S is to start where the patient is at. And so that's um, a basic rundown of cultural humility. Um, and there's a lot of work being done with that internationally, not as much in Australia, but um, Canada is uh, quite leading the way with regards to this. So they've got a good website called Culturally Connected, and that goes through cultural humility in a bit more detail with some really good examples. Thank you. That's uh, wonderful, Sarah. And I, I, we've obviously covered a lot of information today and I wonder if you could provide us with three take-home messages for our members from this from this session. Okay it's a really large topic and three take-home messages is hard and there's so many things that I'd like to say but I'll go with one thing that I just want to remind all our listeners. The first thing is that we all have a culture of our own regardless of what our ethnic background is. So everybody has a culture and this impacts on our interactions with other people regardless of if they're patients or colleagues. And the other thing to remember about all of us having our own culture is that medicine itself has a culture as does the world of diabetes care. So we we need to be aware of our own culture in the diabetes world. That's number one. Number two is be aware of your own biases and assumptions and really self-check what you're doing and how you're interacting with people and then humbly seek to learn from every encounter you have. So don't wait to learn information from books. Every person you meet, whether it's a patient or a colleague, has something that you can learn something from. So that's the second one. So be aware of your biases and, and hope to learn from people. And then finally, approach approach every patient encounter with a sincere intent and let the patient know that you actually value their lived experience 
so that you can gain an understanding into their health beliefs, attitudes and priorities and therefore allow the patient to guide their discussion of their cultural values and help you to incorporate those values into the treatment plan. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. It's really been great hearing about your experience and knowledge in supporting people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. I think that, that this podcast has also given our members lots to think about and hopefully it insists them to ensure their services and programs meet the needs of all people with diabetes or pre-diabetes. Thank you all for taking the time to listen to this podcast and I hope that you've enjoyed the series. Don't forget to log on to the ADA Learning Management System to complete the evaluation of this series and to download your certificate. Next fortnight, we'll commence a series of clinical podcasts that will cover a range of topics, including continuous glucose monitoring, medication management and aged care. So see you then. Goodbye and thank you.